the time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're grateful for the opportunity to talk to Mariel Barnes, assistant professor at the La Follette School of Public Affairs. Professor Barnes is also a core and founding faculty member of UW-Madison's Sexual Violence Research Initiative. Professor Barnes's research examines everyday forms of violence against women, gender, and the politics of welfare states. We'll ask Professor Barnes about her teaching and research, as well as her work at the university's Sexual Violence Research Initiative, which is an interdisciplinary group designed to investigate psychological, societal, and policy aspects of sexual violence. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Barnes. Since this is the first time we've had you on 1050, let's start with a little bit about you and your background and some of your research and teaching interests. Uh, so I'm Mario Barnes. I am a new assistant professor at the Fault School of Public Affairs here at UW-Madison. And I study what I call everyday violence against women. So that's violence that doesn't occur during times where there's a conflict, what we would usually consider kind of peacetime. And I look primarily how social policy and family policies affect that kind of violence. So a little bit about me. I'm originally from Australia, uh, from Sydney, Australia. And I did my undergraduate there at the University of New South Wales. And then I was working in kind of what I would call a dead-end job, literally, because the place I was working was shutting down and closing. So I was trying to work out what I wanted to do. And I said to myself, well, I will, I guess I'll go back to school. And so I applied for a couple of master's programs. And one of them was the University of Chicago. There's uh, what they call Committee on International Relations. And I picked that program deliberately because it was more of an academic style program rather than a policy kind of program because I was trying to test out whether I wanted to do academia or not. And I did a year there. I decided I wanted to do academia. They had an optional second year that was selective, so I applied and I got into that. And then I applied uh, for a PhD. And I one of the places I applied to was Cornell, and I ended up there doing my PhD for seven, seven and a half years. What did you study as an undergrad before your program at U Chicago? Yeah, so my majors at UNSW were uh, what they called politics and international relations, and then history. And so I've always been interested in kind of political science. Back in your undergrad years, or maybe even before, did you ever think that you wanted to be a professor or a researcher? No, not at all. Uh, I kind of fell into it, like, when I went to Chicago, I realized, like, that was kind of, I really did like research. I liked reading, I liked collecting data and analyzing that data, and so it was really, it wasn't planned out at all. I wasn't one of these people that had this dream of being a professor from a very young age. I didn't even realize when I came to the U.S. that you got paid to do a PhD. So I was very, let's say naive, but eventually like found my path. What do you think shaped that consistent interest that you had in international studies and political science? That's a very good question. I'm not sure where it came from. I've always been very passionate about, I guess, social issues and social justice issues. I was a debater in high school and I continued that kind of throughout university. So I like making arguments and I like evidence and that kind of thing. And I've just been 
always involved in some kind of political organization, I guess. Um, and I, that's where it comes from, I think. I find it fascinating, so. Do you think that having experience abroad and being raised in Australia before coming to the U.S. gives you a different perspective on the political aspects of your work? I think that's where my focus on maybe non-U.S. aspects in my work comes from. So I'm much more interested in kind of the comparative politics aspect of political science than necessarily like American politics. I think it provides maybe more of a global perspective or a unique perspective in that maybe there are pockets of information that I have a better understanding about. I would be hesitant to say like that's a rule and not just like me. Sure. Well, speaking of some of the work that you're doing right now, I'd love to talk about some of the projects you have going on at UW. Would you be able to start with an overview of the Sexual Violence Research Initiative? Mm -hmm. So I was actually hired as part of a what they called a sexual violence cluster hire. Janet Hyde over in psychology and gender and women's studies originated this kind of cluster hire and the the original goal was to hire three people who were studying sexual violence in a very broadly defined manner. And so there was a position in psychology which is now filled by Kate Walsh, who's an associate professor, and then there's two they ended up hiring two positions, one in social work and then one in sociology and those people are LB Klein and then Chloe Hart. And then there's me, who is obviously in public affairs. And so from that hiring, Janet's idea was that UW-Madison becomes really kind of the place to study sexual violence or domestic violence, sexual assault, um, and is really kind of at the cutting edge. And so the Sexual Violence Research Initiative is the four of us plus other people on campus who are already studying these issues, kind of getting together and trying to make I think the long-term goal to make it a research center, but that's going to be years in the future. So that's kind of what we're calling SVRI is about. What are some of the shorter term goals that SVRI has right now? Like what kinds of things are you working on day to day? So we're doing fortnightly meetings um, with either faculty or with a broader range of people, which includes graduate students, undergraduates, postdocs, that kind of thing. A lot of it is like being supportive of each other's research. So we read papers, sometimes we do a journal club, we help undergraduates. Our last meeting, we had a couple of undergraduates present abstracts that they're submitting for a conference. And so we went over those and kind of edited them and suggest, made suggestions about how they should structure them to appeal to a selection committee. I recently got some funding in collaboration with my kind of colleagues at some of the colleagues at SVRI and I think we're also hoping to have some funding of our own so we can send students to conferences and things Mm -hmm. like that. Are there any projects going on within SVRI right now that you're really excited about? So one that I would be excited about which is myself and Kate Walsh we just got contracted by the Department of Children and Families to do a program evaluation of a program called Domestic Violence Housing First. The idea behind this is that when you provide people with housing or stable and safe housing, a lot of other problems or challenges that come up for people who are escaping abusive situations uh, are much easier to deal with. So it's much easier to apply for jobs when you have a permanent address and you're not in shelter. It's much easier to apply for other kinds of social benefits as well 
it's much easier for your kids to attend school regularly if they have a stable home life. And so the Department of Children and Families received a couple of uh, million dollars from the American Rescue Plan. And so they decided to implement Housing First, and there are about 10 sites across Wisconsin where they're doing that, and we're going to evaluate it. That's something that I'm really excited about and something that like has come out of that SVRI collaboration um, and wouldn't have happened if I had just been a single hire. So the cluster hire strategy, I think, is really good. Sure. What variables or outcomes are you looking at? whole bunches of stuff. So our idea is that we want to follow up with women over time who have received this kind of funding. And so we'd be looking at stuff like not only do they have greater housing stability and greater housing satisfaction, but also are educational outcomes. So like, are they able to send their kids to school on a regular basis? How is their, how are their kids' grades? Uh, Better mental health and physical health outcomes less exposure to violence, more awareness of like knowledge and support within communities, whole bunches of stuff. Very holistic. Yes, exactly. Like we're really looking at this as trying to see like essentially what is the impact and but impact very, very broadly defined. Wow, that's fascinating. So I'm assuming this is going to be over the course of many years then? Yes. So the initial pilot is going to run for three years. And so we're going to be evaluating it over that period of time. And then hopefully if the evaluation is positive, which I think it will be because in other states where Housing First has been implemented, they've had positive outcomes. Hopefully that is something that we can use then to apply for more funding or Wisconsin can like put funding into that kind of model and other shelters throughout the state can start to implement it. Let's move into talking about some of your personal research and your book project. So the book is called The Politics of Domestic Violence, and these findings in your project are so interesting. So quoting from your website, the argument is that variation in levels of violence against women can best be explained by variation in a state's implementation and promotion of the universal breadwinning model which includes such policies as paid paternal leave, publicly funded daycare services, home care allowances, and individual taxation. While these policies help increase female economic independence, they also precipitate the unraveling of traditional gender roles, which then provokes a violent male backlash against their partners. So would you be able to just unpack some of that and how you came to that central argument? Mm -hmm. So... In order to do that, I'll tell you a little bit about maybe the background of the project and where it came from. So I was a graduate student and I was kind of hunting around for a dissertation topic. And I was reading the news one day and I read a news article that said that uh, Danish women reported that 50 or 52% of Danish women reported having experienced some kind of physical or sexual violence in their lifetime. And I'm like, that is very high considering what we think about Denmark you know, it's usually the happiest place on earth. Great social welfare programs, we think. It's usually held up in contrast to the U.S. as the way that we should be doing things. And I was like, that's strange. So I went and I looked about where this statistic came from. And the EU did a big survey uh, in all 28 EU member states with 1,500 women in each country. They were randomly selected about violence that they had experienced, everyday forms of violence. And what you see there is that there is this counterintuitive relationship. So the most developed countries that we would think of, so Nordic countries, Northern Europe, have the highest rates of violence. 
And even within that data, there's interesting variations. So say, uh, if you compare Germany and Austria, for example, Germany is very high, but Austria is very low. And although Germans and Austrians would say they're very different, in terms of comparing, usually they, we would consider they have similar histories and institutions and cultures and languages and things like that. And so you have to think about like, or I was thinking about at least like, why are they so different and why do we see this overall trend? And so then I got thinking about, well, what's distinguishing here are these different social welfare kind of models or social welfare state models. And so investigating that a little bit, I was thinking like, how does social welfare affect women and what's the purpose of social welfare? And oftentimes it is to kind of socialize the burden and some people might not like me say burden about their families, but like the, the costs of familyhood essentially. And those costs disproportionately fall on women. So when we socialize them, that should lead to more uh, independence for women. And that usually involves like employment. And so thinking through then how that change and how that socialization of that, those costs then affect dynamics within families and bargaining within families. And so then how, how do men react to that? Um, and that's how the backlash kind of mechanism came about. Interesting. So what was the data you were examining and how are you testing the argument? Yeah, so I have the original, the survey that the EU did. So there's 42,000 observations in that. And then we have to think about like how the data was collected. And so, like I said, it was random, but they also did a whole bunch of kind of backstops in there. So like the enumerators were all specially trained. They were all female. They translated the survey into multiple languages multiple times and then compared across versions to make sure they were asking the right questions. They asked about very specific forms of violence. So instead of just being, have you experienced violence before? They asked, have you had your hair pulled? Have you been punched? Have you had your head thrown into a wall? Kind of, have you been burned? Um, and so they didn't leave that up to the personal conceptualizations of individuals. And then they also had, they went and they back-checked, you know, 10% randomly of like responses, 5% of non-responses. They did media monitoring the whole shebang. So I have that data set um, at a national level. I can't get the subnational data because for identification reasons, they would prefer not to release it, which is completely legitimate. And then I also have data from the OECD and then comparing those and analyzing and matching those up. So to sum it up, what were the central findings and what should our takeaway from that be? Mm -hmm. So in particular, what I find is that in-kind childcare increases violence against women. And that's a very strong effect. And that's in the main analysis where I use the main portion of the survey. And then the survey also includes what I call an anonymous section where there were six questions at the end, which women filled out not by themselves, sealed in an envelope, and then it wasn't opened until it went back to the main uh, recording center. And so in both of those analyses, that result holds, which is, I feel, very disturbing. And then also when we look at maternal leave, we find that longer periods of maternal leave actually decrease violence against women. 
And so that would be because women are inhabiting that more, according to my theory, that would be because women are inhabiting that traditional role. And so men don't react violently in that kind of situation. And I find these, I think a lot of people find these results very disturbing. And I do too, because then the implication is, well, women shouldn't be working and we shouldn't be funding daycare and we shouldn't be funding long periods of maternal leave. And that's definitely not what I want people to take away from this project. I think instead of viewing this as a problem with the social welfare state, uh, we should view it, first of all, we should view it as like, we need to think critically about how we provide help to people. And that we can't just assume that more is always better when it comes to the social welfare state. But also then, I think we should think about this as a problem with gender norms and a problem with men's subscription to those gender norms and patriarchy. And so instead of changing the social welfare state and encouraging women to kind of stay at home and inhabit that traditional role, we should be doing all we can to kind of undertake that normative change with men and encouraging them to adopt kind of more of that caring, caregiving role. Um, and that it is not essential for them to be breadwinners within families necessarily. And your examination was controlling for economic status as well as country development. So was the pattern the same across all those variables? Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of evidence that backlash is occurring, particularly in the developing context. So with microfinance, there's been other studies kind of in Latin America that are showing the cash payments decreased violence as well, which again is probably the same thing going on, but in the reverse. So you give cash, women can stay at home or like care for children and then you don't get the backlash. Um, but people often don't think this happens in the developed context. And I'm always like, why? Patriarchy exists in the Western world as well. And people often think that maybe we're more kind of, we've moved past that in some ways, but I'm not so sure that we have. So one study I often cite, again, is the Danes. Um, Danish men are more likely to use erectile dysfunction medication okay. if they are out-earned by their wives. And I'm like, that's very telling. <laughs> like, even if you are not the most machismo person yeah, outwardly, sure. like, there's something, like, internal that is about providing for families or, or providing for your family, I guess. So it's interesting and so yeah we have an easier time believing that it's happening in the developing world but not necessarily elsewhere so is the data suggesting some sort of causatory link like the welfare state by enacting these policies is somehow enabling or promoting violence against women or is it only correlational like would you say that the welfare economic policies are the main variable so i would be careful when i say social welfare state causes violence. I would never say that. Violence against women, I think, is a multifaceted problem. And there are like many different causes. So people often say like alcohol causes violence. And I'm like, no one has a few drinks and then decides to like just hit their wife out of nowhere. Like there's always abuse there. It may not be physical, but it's definitely not a healthy relationship if your first response when you get drunk is to uh, inflict violence against the person you apparently love most in the world. And so I think these things contribute and it's kind of a melting pot or like a perfect storm. And so 
I would say alcohol exacerbates violence. I would also say like social welfare policies exacerbate it. This is beyond the scope of your research, but do you know of any solutions that have been proposed that would help address this sort of lack of balance in caregiving or some of the underlying bias that contributes to violence? So this is not my idea. I should give credit to Nancy Fraser, who she actually coined the term the universal breadwinning model, but she has a number of different other kinds of models that we could follow if we wanted the social welfare state to change. And so one of them is like the traditional model of male breadwinning, then you've got universal breadwinning, but then you've also got the universal caregiving model, where what we do is we incentivize men to stay at home with children and to adopt that kind of more caregiving role. And so instead of using our financial wherewithal to encourage women into employment, you encourage men to not stay out, but just, you know, do something different. So I guess that would be extending paternal leave, paternity leave, uh, paying men to like have parental leave, like when kids are sick and that kind of thing. That data is a tough pill to swallow in a lot of ways. How was the data received when you first presented it to people? With lots of skepticism. (laughs) Um, So I actually just presented the my job market paper, which is kind of the cross national results to the comparative politics colloquium here. And everyone liked it, but I presented for 15, 20 minutes, and then I had 45 minutes, 50 minutes of just feedback, which is great because it was constructive and very, very helpful. But yeah, people often want more of a, like more on the mechanism of backlash, more uh, of the results, more robustness checks. Um, And so it often stimulates a lot of discussion, which is good. But lots of skepticism still we'll see how it goes when i like try to publish something like this wow we'll have to check back in on that at some point i think this project is fascinating i do want to get a chance to talk about some of your other work as well so let's move on to this other fascinating project you have going on engaging with the so-called manosphere which is a great term that i haven't heard before at least in this context So in your project, The Politics of the Manosphere, again quoting from your website, you write that the manosphere constitutes an important yet hitherto ignored social movement. So what is the manosphere? Mm -hmm. So the manosphere, as I would define it, and I should say this is a co-authored project with uh, Sabrina Kareem, who's at Cornell. She was on my dissertation committee. The manosphere is a collection of blogs, websites, forums that are orientated around men's rights and the idea that men are discriminated against in contemporary society, and they live under what they call the gynocracy. And they often use evidence like, uh, and a lot of this evidence is true, that, for example, men are more likely to be homeless, or men are more likely to suffer from depression, as evidence that men's issues are very widespread but ignored by contemporary society because society is dominated by women. And so this has really sprung up, I think, in the last kind of in the late 2000s. So around we have data, we've collected approximately, I think we have 150, a data set of like 150 websites of the most prominent websites in the manosphere. And what we do is we have entries for since each website has started until kind of when they either die out or if they're still going. Um, so it, the observation unit is organization or website and year. 
And what you see is that you see around 2010, 2012, there's a huge peak in growth in these kinds of websites. And our argument is they're a social movement because they're really kind of a backlash, again, a backlash effect. I'm obsessed with backlash, apparently, um, to rising gender equality. You can divvy up the manosphere into kind of different groups. So you have kind of men's rights act, what I would call men's rights activists who are very focused on men's issues that men are discriminated against and that we need to implement policy to change that. Um, so they were very integral in the kind of father's rights movement for custody. And then you have other groups. So you have pickup artists, which are less politically inclined. Their focus is mainly on picking up women, as their name would suggest. You have uh, men going their own way, which they are often kind of, we just don't interact with women at all because women are manipulative and dangerous and untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. And then you have like incels, which are, from what we can tell, usually on the younger side, who are the incel word comes from a combination of involuntary celibate. So they're usually young men who have not yet uh, had a partner or a romantic relationship yet. And they're very frustrated about that. And so in our project, we're trying to decipher, like, are some of these groups kind of more politically active than others? And are some more dangerous than others? And so the men's rights activists are very political and they try to, although they are disorganized, um, which is perhaps a good thing, but then incels are less politically orientated, but more likely to be dangerous. So a lot of the kind of mass shootings that we hear about out, so the one out at Isla Vista, I'm not gonna say the guy's name because I don't wanna give him any kind of attention, but his deal was that women rejected him and he uh, decided to exact his like revenge on them by acting out violently. So you're trying to differentiate political activity levels between those different manosphere groups? Yeah, and how political activity becomes an, an outlet for these groups. And so I guess this is still tentative because we're rewriting the paper right now, but the more politically active you are as a group, the less likely we are to see like very violent public acts like massacres happen. So you said that this manosphere activity peaked between 2010 and 2012. How active has it been in the years between then and now? So from what we can tell actually from the data, it's actually decreasing. Websites are, obviously it's difficult to track because websites and blogs like are ethereal kind of, and they like close down and people stop updating them and that kind of thing. But at least the creation has really dropped off since about 2014, 2015, and particularly 2016. So there's a downward decline. And we would theorize that's because probably of Donald Trump being elected and that these views are much more accepted in wider society. And so you don't need to be an anonymous person on a blog expressing your interests. You can just express them openly. Yeah, Donald Trump has like legitimized a lot of this kind of speech and hatred towards women. Were social media platforms factored into your evaluation? Like any shady private Facebook groups or anything? No, Uh, this is just kind of websites themselves. 
One thing that we're hoping to do kind of in the future is do a Twitter analysis, so scrape Twitter, and then do a network analysis of these groups. And so find a couple of hubs and see how they all connect. Because we also think, although we can't prove it, that the manosphere is perhaps a, a gateway into more, even more distasteful ideologies. So white supremacy, um, anti-Semitism, and other kind of things that we don't like, essentially. Um, and so it would be really interesting to see with that Twitter data how much overlap there is kind of between those two groups. Uh, it's getting more difficult, though, because Twitter has obviously purged a lot of these people from their platform. They've taken more of a stand against this kind of language, um, but there's still kind of ways to do it. So that would be an extension of the project we're hoping to do. Yeah, I wonder if some of those people who were posting on anonymous blogs before are now just using non-anonymous social media platforms. I think that's somewhat what's happening, right? It's like much easier just to shoot off a, how many characters is Twitter? 240 character tweet than it is to write a blog, like a blog post, right? And you also get much more interaction and like notoriety kind of when your tweet goes viral. It's much harder to promote your blog Having read a lot of these blog posts, a lot of them, I have no idea what they're saying even in them. Like, they're not good writers. I don't understand the point that they're making. It's like, you know, I have wolf energy, and I'm like, what is wolf energy? (laughs) Uh, And I feel sorry, because when we were updating our data set, I had a whole bunch of undergraduate RAs who had to read this stuff (laughs) um, to put it in the data set, and so I had to... Constantly, I'm sorry you have to read this. Do you see the Manosphere's beliefs as being relatively stable? Or do you think that there have been fluctuations in those beliefs and their severity in recent years that's influenced by external events like elections or general societal norms? I think they've probably held some version of that for a very long time. I think they probably have been kind of misogynistic. And then it's become more extreme and amplified when they're around people who think the same way as them. You know, people often say, you know, you exist in a bubble. Well, that's definitely a bubble. And so when you're receiving that reassurance that your viewpoint is accurate, you're more likely to kind of go be more sure of yourself and confident in that opinion and then go to even more extremes. I guess the other important thing to add about the manosphere is it's not just men. There are some women who are involved in the in the manosphere and like believe that yeah, men need help and like yes, men everyone needs help in society, but specifically that men are being discriminated against. So uh, there's a there's a podcast, I think it's called Honey Badger Brigade, which are all women. There's also a number of mothers who start groups about false rape a- allegations on campuses. And they have sons who have often been accused Mm. um, and they obviously don't like that and so that they use that as evidence that their sons are victims of this kind of conspiracy theory enacted by women there's a couple of blogs that i've looked through that are that are written by women about how to be a good housewife and how to worship her husband which is i find kind of ironic because you wouldn't be doing that without some form of like yes feminism or gender equality um yeah and they subscribe to how do i how do i be the best traditional kind of wife that i can be i think there's definitely been kind of a shift 
in how we view gender equality. And actual fact, like to bring this back to Denmark, which I always do, or like Europe in general, we actually see this extreme adherence to gender equality. So gender equality used to be about raising women up. And now it's actually gone full circle. So if you, you help women, oftentimes the response in kind of Northern Europe is, all right, but what are you doing for men as well? Like it has to be like equal in the extreme. And so I think that's much more common as well. In your mind, what are the implications for how this research might inform policy choices? Should we be doing something to mitigate the effects of the manosphere? That's a difficult question. Again, I don't, I don't know if we can mitigate it. I think that kind of view is always there. When it was here previously, it was an extreme fringe, perhaps. And so that having these blogs and having this space for men to interact like this is essentially legitimizing their, their worldview. And it's, particularly with incels as well, it's um, radicalizing them. And so I would think that one way to combat this is to, again, delegitimize this kind of view in that it's not an acceptable way to view kind of the world. But beyond that, like in terms of like shutting blogs down, I think in general, like with social media, like kicking these people off Twitter is a good idea. Like when they say vile things, like let them go to Gab or whatever the very like free speech orientated social media Twitter site is, um, because as we isolate them, they're ex- they're not exposing as many people to that kind of view, and so they're not attracting people. Because some of these arguments are potentially attractive, right? Like it's true that men um, or are more likely to suffer homelessness and are also not often prioritized in homeless policy. So like we often see that cities and counties if a woman and a child or children are homeless they often get priority with getting into like some kind of housing and they do that because we have certain ideas about what women and children like the value of like children and the value of women and so you can easily see how some of these arguments are there's a grain of truth there where the the fundamental underlying idea is true and then from that comes this idea that men are victims in kind of broader society. And so it can be very attractive if we give them a platform. We're going to wrap up with a fun question about Madison. So since you've been here for almost a year now, have you found your favorite food spots? And what types of things do you normally do on weekends now? Uh, so favorite spots in Madison. So I live right around the corner from Madison Sourdough. So I am in there fairly regularly. Uh, they've started recognizing me, which is kind of embarrassing. Um, I also kind of stereotypically, I guess, I really like Halong Bay and then Taigu, which is over on the west side, or I guess in Middleton, technically. Because coming from Australia, I really like Asian food, and you often don't get good Asian food, because I have, I have not been to the west coast. I've been told I need to go to the west coast for Asian food. Um, I like Robin Room, if I was getting a drink, which is east of the capital as well. And then kind of weekend weekend plans so i've started rock climbing which is exciting i'm not very good but it's something new i went for a hike up at devil's lake um a couple weekends ago which was fun although cold what else have i done recently that's about it i think the the winter weather puts a bit of a damper on things yeah winter is hard it sounds like you're finding all the good spots though thank you so much for being with us today professor barnes it's been great talking to you thank you very much for having me 
For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.